0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Good evening. Uh, My name is Anne-Marie Charlesworth, and I'm the director of the UCSF Earth Center Community Engagement Corps. On behalf of my colleagues and co-chairs, Patrice Sutton, Robert Gold, and Nadia Gaber, I'd like to welcome you to the launch of Environmental Justice and Human Health, Creating Systemic Solutions, a six-week Osher Mini Medical School series. This series will explore a range of environmental contributors to human health and disease through the lens of our most vulnerable populations and seek to identify and advocate for systemic solutions by health professionals and community members. The series has been co-organized by the UCSF Earth Center, UCSF Program for Reproductive Health in the Environment, and San Francisco Bay Physicians for Social Responsibility, and further supported by the UCSF Center for Health, Climate Health and Equity, and the Environmental and Climate Health Student Advisory Group. Tonight's webinar, Environmental Threats to Reproductive Health and Human Fertility, will explore the relationship between our climate emergency the ubiquitous exposure to toxic environmental chemicals, and their impacts on human reproductive health and fertility. Now, I'd like to introduce you to Patrice Sutton. Ms. Sutton is a research scientist who has worked with a program for reproductive health and the environment since its founding in 2007. She has over 30 years of experience in occupational and environmental health research, industrial hygiene, public health practice, policy development, and community-based advocacy. Ms. Sutton is currently the chair of the Environmental Health Committee of San Francisco Bay Physicians for Social Responsibility, and she will be moderating this panel.
2: I'm very delighted to introduce our first speaker. Um, Dr. Pandapati is board certified in maternal fetal medicine and obstetrics and gynecology. He has been working for Mednax Obstetrics Medical Group since 2012 and has been Medical Director for Maternal Fetal Medicine at O'Connor Hospital in San Jose since 2012. He was the recipient of many awards during his medical education and training, having been elected to the Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Medical Society, selected as best teaching residence for medical students, and serving as administrative chief resident when he completed his ob residency in 2004 at the University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle. And I would very much like to warmly welcome Dr. Pandapati, and he can begin his presentation.
3: Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. It's an honor to be presenting to the Mini Medical School and to be asked to speak. So this evening, I would like to briefly touch upon women's health and reproductive health in a time of climate crisis, especially as it relates to environmental justice and human health. I have no personal financial conflicts of interest to disclose. There are a few objectives as a healthcare provider that I wanted to make sure that we cover. One, healthcare providers should understand the fundamental principles of climate change. We need increased awareness of climate change related adverse impacts on women's health. And as women's healthcare providers, we need to understand how we can assist and empower women in confronting challenges of climate change. And just as important, we need to understand how we ourselves can help mitigate climate change. It's important to understand that climate change truly is happening. There really is no doubt any longer. And while our current efforts as health care providers is centered around defeating the COVID-19 pandemic, just around the corner and in fact always lurking behind the scenes has been the ever-growing existential threat of climate change. Climate change is the defining issue of our age. Our response will define our future, and to ride the storm, we need all hands on deck. This was stated by Mr. Ban Ki-moon at the opening address to the UN Climate Summit in 2014. I think it's important to just understand some basic principles. The greenhouse effect is simply sunlight reaching the earth. Some of this energy is reflected back into space, some is absorbed and re-radiated as heat, and most of the heat is absorbed by the greenhouse gases and reflected in all all directions, warming the Earth. That's what makes our planet habitable. And in fact, without greenhouse gases, our surface temperature would be zero degrees Fahrenheit instead of the approximate 60 degrees it is today. Now, the most important human-caused or anthropogenic greenhouse gases are carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide, with CO2 being the most abundant of these. Uh, Human-caused global warming is actually not a new concept. It's been around and was predicted more than 100 years ago by Svante Arrhenius in 1904. Now, when you look at the CO2 concentrations as they fluctuated up and down over the last 800,000 years... There has never been a CO2 level as high as it is now. And you can see on this graph how abruptly the increase has been. In fact, the current CO2 concentration hasn't been seen since the Miocene period, which is about 15 million years ago. All of this increased greenhouse gas emissions has led to a clear and overwhelming warming of the earth across the board with an average increase of about one degree Celsius, Uh, as a temperature departure from the 20th century mean. So what does this mean for the climate itself with all of these emissions? Well, the ongoing as well as anticipated impacts of climate change include sea level rise, ocean acidification and heating, intense droughts, flooding and storms, more frequent hot and fewer cold extremes resulting in increased frequency and intensity of heat waves, more wildfires as well as extreme weather events. Now, of course, we humans live in this environment, so we are going to feel the impacts. And in fact, adverse impacts on human health are already being felt today around the world. Extreme weather events leading to direct injuries, fatalities, and mental health effects. Heat stress leading to heat-related illness and death. Deterioration of air quality leading to worsening asthma and other respiratory illnesses, respiratory allergies, and cardiovascular disease. Deteriorating water quality and quantity allowing for spread of infectious agents such as Campylobacter and cholera. We've got threatened food supply and safety, leading to crises of undernutrition, malnourishment, salmonella food poisoning, and other foodborne diseases. And as the earth warms, a greater ability for vectors such as ticks and mosquitoes to spread wider, leading to greater prevalence and spread of Chikungunya, dengue, encephalitis, hantavirus, Lyme disease, malaria, Rift Valley fever, West Nile virus, Zika, to name just a few. And of course, our sociopolitical systems are vulnerable. And as they feel the brunt of climate change, especially the uh, less advantaged societies around the world, physical and mental health effects from violent conflict and forced migration are being seen and are anticipated to worsen. It's important to understand heat itself is lethal to human beings after several hours of exposure at a sustained wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees Celsius. This is essentially 35 degrees Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit at 100% humidity, equivalent to 115 degrees Fahrenheit at 50% humidity. At these temperatures and humidity levels, there is no ability for our bodies to evaporate, to sweat and thereby cool, which is our main mechanism for cooling off. And in fact, at these temperatures and humidity levels, our bodies switch from shedding heat to the environment to absorbing it. And unfortunately, and quite scarily, portions of the Middle East and South Asia already achieve wet bulb temperatures near 35 degrees Celsius. When we talk about air pollution, we are most focused on the 2.5 micron particulates that are emitted or released when we burn fossil fuels. And these have been linked in multiple studies to asthma, coronary artery disease, pulmonary cancers, premature deaths. So climate change is a health crisis, and UCSF took the lead on this topic in their winter 2020 magazine, highlighting that the climate crisis is a health crisis that medicine must reckon with the coming catastrophe. Of course, Related to this very mini med school is that certain populations are more vulnerable than others, and as a maternal fetal medicine specialist, I have a great deal of concern about mothers and babies, and we are now understanding that adverse pregnancy outcomes such as low birth weight, premature birth, have been associated and linked with extreme heat events, airborne particulates, flooding, and other disasters. And of course... Young children, uh, not only those born prematurely, but those who are just exposed to these environmental dangers, are at greater risk for their health from asthma and diarrheal disease and other heat-related illnesses. And once getting into school age and older, there are concerns about exposure to vector-borne, water-borne disease, respiratory effects, and even cognitive uh, effects from excess heat and CO2 concentrations. Now, there are some unique impacts on women's health, which is understandable, given that women and men often play different roles in different societies. And climate change impacts are expected to therefore have a differential impact. In many cases, unfortunately, the adverse impacts are likely to be worse for women than men by widening health disparities that already exist in many parts of the world. Even with heat related morbidity and mortality, women have physiologically less sweat higher working metabolic rates and thicker subcutaneous fat that prevents them from cooling themselves as efficiently as men. And unfortunately, the European and American heatwave data uh, does bear this out with a 15 to 20% higher death rate among all women and a 40% higher death rate among elderly uh, women. respiratory and cardiovascular diseases such as asthma, COPD, lung malignancies, coronary artery disease are already at baseline higher in prevalence mostly due to indoor air pollution from cook stoves around the world with 4 million excess premature deaths per year. And these are anticipated to worsen with unabated fossil fuel consumption, as well as wildfires and particulate emissions from uh, uh, from those. Anemia and malnutrition already exist in um, uh, disparate uh, uh, prevalence between men and women, and we expect exacerbation of these disparities with worsening food quality. Physical and sexual violence, there is a higher incidence that's well documented in times of natural disasters, as well as decreased life expectancy for women. And this is especially true in societies with significant socioeconomic disparities. Anxiety, depression, and other mood disorders are anticipated to significantly increase. And as we see a breakdown in social safety nets, a lack of access to prenatal care, contraception, and family planning options is anticipated. There is some specific pathophysiology that harms pregnancy. Again, my area of expertise, there's a reduced ability to thermoregulate in pregnancy. And heat exposure alters placental blood flow, increasing risk for abruption. And adverse outcomes are triggered by hitting critical temperature thresholds that vary from region to region. There is, of course, also concern about increased susceptibility to pathogens such as malaria and Zika and increased exposure to particulate air pollution, as I mentioned, outdoor from wildfires, indoor from cook stoves. Uh, Becker and his co-authors in June of 2020 reviewed a number of articles looking at the links between air pollution and heat exposure to adverse pregnancy outcomes, specifically preterm birth, low birth weight, and stillbirth. And the overwhelming majority of the studies they looked at showed a clear association with increased risks of premature birth and low birth weight and stillbirth uh, ranging as high as 31% for low birth weight with heat exposure. So these are real uh, concerns. Now, heat itself is also attributed to increased risk for congenital heart defects. And the scary part about this is that it's predicted that there is going to be as much as a 60% rise in the incidence of congenital heart defects in some parts of the United States by 2035. 51% increase in congenital cataracts, higher rates of fetal distress, need for ventilation for more than half an hour meconium aspiration, higher rates of newborn dehydration and need for rehospitalization, higher rates of maternal hypertensive disorders, more pronounced in African-Americans, and psychosocial outcomes in the offspring who were exposed to heat waves in utero, clear associations with diminished cognitive ability and adult earnings. Even within our state of California, when you look at Every 10 degree rise in Fahrenheit in weekly average temperature, there is a concomitant increase in uh, preterm birth rate that varies county to county depending on the exposure. Some counties, such as Alameda County, showing as high as a 21% increased risk for preterm birth. Natural disasters have been associated with higher rates of preterm birth, low birth weight, elevated BMI, and central adiposity in offspring and higher rates of mental health effects, including autism spectrum disorders, schizophrenia and mood disorders in offspring. And this is data that has emerged out of Hurricane Sandy and Hurricane Katrina, Uh, higher rates of hypertensive complications as well. So the question becomes, what happens when we have worsening heat, air pollution and climate disasters that all conspire to occur at the same time? Well, what had been a theoretical question only a decade or so ago has all too frequently become a reality in many parts of the world when we have this co-occurrence of multiple uh, stressors uh, at the same time. This is leading to a continuum of harm where climate change is impacting in utero, setting up these offspring for a lifetime of complications Higher predispositions for a variety of conditions, including obesity and type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular and metabolic problems, allergies, cognitive deficits, congenital defects, etc. Never mind the direct impacts that climate change has on uh, growing human beings uh, themselves. Now, with all this negativity, it's important to understand that women don't have to be victims. They actually can be a part of and can themselves help with flattening the emissions curve. How so? Well, women have a unique role. Uh, They uh, have, uh, uh, in order to uh, alleviate the negative impacts of climate change on human health, we we need to account for the disparities between men and women. And what's interesting is that women traditionally have a responsibility as family caregivers in many parts of the world, which actually places them in some unique decision-making roles that can impact climate repeatedly throughout the day. The use of appliances, the purchase of household goods, the establishment of family dietary habits and patterns, educating and shaping children's energy consumption habits and the number of offspring that they have. Women mediate the interplay between population growth and climate change, of course, through their reproductive behavior. And what we understand is that about 225 million women in lower income nations desire greater control over their pregnancies, but completely lack access to contraception. As a result, a large part of the 74 million unintended pregnancies worldwide uh, occur. And we all understand that nearly half of pregnancies in the United States are unintended. It's clear that the number of offspring that any mother has is linked with her education level. Simply by meeting unmet contraceptive demand, a demand that exists already, we could reduce CO2 emissions by as much as 60 gigatons by 2050. CO2 emissions could be reduced by 30% by 2100 while eliminating 100,000 maternal deaths per year, 500,000 neonatal deaths per year, and 600,000 postnatal deaths per year. These are not small numbers. And, of course, providing such contraceptive options would lead to a greater reduction in per capita emissions in developed nations than developing nations, would help prevent the birth of millions in developing nations, who not only would contribute to future emissions, but would become victims themselves. And so slowing the rapid population growth is a prerequisite to allow countries vulnerable to climate change to develop appropriate adaptive policies. In other words, a means to build climate-resilient societies would lead to improvements in women's empowerment, equality, and well-being, and amazingly would cost less than $10 billion per year for the developing world. Achieving universal education, meaning 12 years of schooling, would allow us to reduce emissions by 60 gigatons by 2050. And the difference between a woman with no years of schooling and 12 years of schooling is almost four to five children per woman. Educating girls is considered by many to be the single most important socioeconomic factor to reduce vulnerability to natural disasters and would cost less than $40 billion per year worldwide to provide such universal education to lower and low-income nations. So by educating women about the impact of their daily decisions, empowering women over their reproductive fates, advocating for equal pay and career opportunities, which provide means for self-reliance and resiliency, elevating women's leadership roles within families and communities, women don't have to be victims. Rather, they can become powerful agents themselves and mitigating and adapting to climate change. Christina Figures, one of the chief architects of the Paris Accords, said this quite eloquently. Women are disproportionately affected by climate change impacts such as droughts, floods, and other extreme weather events. They also have a critical role in combating climate change but need to be better represented at all levels in decision-making. Empowering women will be a significant factor in meeting the climate challenge." Now, what about us as healthcare providers? We need to fight our tendency to ask, what business is it of mine? We each strive daily to effectively care for our patients. We assume that our patients will live in environments that will not harm them. But the imminent climate crisis will overwhelm and negate all of the historic public health and basic science advances we have achieved thus far. And I ask, are we not conservation biologists for our own species? We took an oath to protect our patients, and we have an ethical duty to act. I need to emphasize, however, that our time is limited. Many have uh, uh, projected that we will need to limit our emissions to, uh, so that we can limit temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2100 in order to avoid the worst outcomes. That means we can only emit 340 gigatons of carbon dioxide before we exceed our 1.5 degrees Celsius budget, which is only 8 to 10 years of current emissions And as you can see, we should have been bending this curve already well before 2020. Our current pledges as they are through the Paris Accords would still lead to nearly three degrees Celsius rise. And our current policies in place will lead to a greater than three degrees Celsius rise in temperature, which are horrifically high. Now, women's and human health improvements can make a huge impact. We can flatten the curve for emissions to borrow the pandemic language. We can buy more time that will allow for more technical fixes. The gigatons we can reduce by 2050 add up quickly between contraception, education, clean cookstoves, improving exercise and mobility, and making diet changes uh, towards more plant-based diets can allow us to reduce emissions by 212 gigatons, which is more than half the amount of our remaining CO2 budget. So climate change mitigation is very much in the purview of healthcare providers and public health policy measures. It's not just in the realm of fancy technology. So in summary, human-induced climate change is anticipated to have numerous adverse impacts to human health. Women, especially through their reproductive years, are disproportionately vulnerable to potential adverse effects on their health that can lead to reverberating lifelong impacts on their offspring. Nevertheless, women are also uniquely qualified to play a central role in mitigating and adapting to climate change. And we as women's healthcare providers should be aware of the potential negative impacts of climate change on our patients, how we can assist our patients in becoming effective agents for mitigation and adaptation. And healthcare providers can push society and should, including our respective political and medical institutions, to reduce emissions. But I implore that our actions must be soon and efficacious. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Pandapati, for um, what a perfect opening for our whole mini medical school, which is so directed at systemic solutions to look at these kinds of um, very elegant solutions in terms of uplifting women's reproductive rights and education and providing a great um, basis for our discussions. I would like to now turn the microphone over to Dr. Jeannie Conry. Um, Dr. Connery has more than 28 years of experiencing practicing obstetrics and gynecology. She is president-elect of the International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics, which is FIGO, and she is past president of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and a member of the FIGO Executive Board. She is also chair of the United States Women's Preventative Health Services Initiative, a collaborative initiative of health professional organizations. And consumer advocates who recommend and guide preventative health services across a, woman, a woman's lifespan. And she's co chair of the FIGO Working Group on Reproductive and Developmental Environmental Health. Thank you so much. Welcome, Dr. Conry, and I will turn it over to you.
4: Thank you, Patrice, and thank you to UC San Francisco for inviting me to be part of this incredible program um, and following um, Dr. Sanipatiya, and everything that you've just said, um, it's an incredible honor to be part of this, and I look forward to hearing the other speakers today. I'll be discussing environmental threats to reproductive health and human fertility, and really focusing on endocrine disruptors. And we've already seen how important our planet Earth is for health, and what an incredible view of climate change and how women can empower themselves when we talk about climate change. What I want to do is mention or, or put in place the understanding of how the environment is so closely related to well-women health care and to maternal morbidity and mortality. We as clinicians need to be able to be well-versed in environmental issues and environmental concepts. Um, and I, if, if, Patrice, it was you who said... Um, Why don't you remind us how OBGYNs became involved in all of this? Because as, as um, Sandra said, it seems, you know, people say this is a little bit far afield, us talking about the environment, but it isn't. And it was about 2006, 2008, that the California state legislature contacted the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and said, what do you all think about lead and lipstick? We said, lead and lipstick. Okay. We know it's bad. We know it must be bad because lead's bad. And then we said, oh no, it's in lipstick. It must be fine. And right then we realized that we had no idea. In fact, we did not know that there was lead in lipstick. We did not know that there was no research about the impact of lead on our makeup and realized that we needed to take an important role and stand up for women, not only in the United States, but around the globe. So this will be a tale about how we got to where we are today. The first thing I um, have encountered is people You know, what's the environment? Physicians shouldn't talk about the environment. And we heard Santos describe very eloquently about why the environment is critical to health and why we can empower women to make change. But really, the hurdle often is the, the healthcare providers, the clinicians, who don't realize that they are talking about the environment. You know, they think of outdoor biology and indoor biology. And certainly outdoor biology might be um, exposure to industrial chemicals, the whole alphabet soup of PFOAs, PBDEs, phthalates, and BPAs. Or it might be agricultural chemicals, the insecticides like glyphosate and chlorpyrifos, heat, radiation, and as we just heard, particular matter makes a difference in our health. And so that has always seemed like outdoor biology and something that we shouldn't deal with as a a physician. But I would say we're actually the best when it comes to talking about the environment, because who better than an OBGYN to talk about the impact of blood glucose, food and nutrients on the health of a fetus. We know it can cause defects in a fetus if a woman's blood sugar has been too high. That's the environment. We know that prescription drugs have the potential to be a teratogen, That's the environment. And likewise, exposures like tobacco or alcohol, drugs, any of those are the environment a fetus is exposed to. And certainly we know about social determinants of health. So who better than women's health providers to talk about the impact of the environment? And when we've led um, lectures on global health, we've talked about air pollution, water pollution, pesticides, Environmental toxics from personal care products, mining pollution, deforestation, and climate change. And depending on what community we're dealing with, we know that their levels of concern differ. When we were were, um, meeting with individuals in Colombia, we heard how important mining pollution is on the health of their population. And yet in other areas, we hear about pesticides. So each community knows that there are impacts that are greater than others. And we also know that we have to deal with what are called endocrine disruptors. Endocrine disruptors, according to the World Health Organization, are chemicals that have the potential to interfere in some way with hormone action, and they alter endocrine function so that they can lead to adverse human and wildlife effects. And it was Dr. Tracy Woodruff, who you're going to hear from next, leading a team of scientists who identified many, many different modes of action, whether it's agonists or antagonists, whether it's crossing a membrane. There are at least 10 different modes of action for endocrine disruptors to affect our health. And we have a long history where we should be familiar with endocrine disruptors, and yet it took years and years of studying the exposure to understand really how serious that effect was. I'll give you an example of lead shortly, but diethylstilbestrol was a, a medication used in the 1950s that went on to cause cancer in women. And in the, in the, the, office, the women who were taking DES to, provo- to prevent a miscarriage, their daughters de- developed a vaginal cancer and the sons of those daughters developed um, penile defects, Methylmercury, we saw a generation of exposure in Japan develop serious neurologic deficits because of exposure to methylmercury. And thalidomide, thankfully, was not um, did not see exposure as much in the United States, but all around the world, we saw major limb defects for women who had taken thalidomide during pregnancy. So we've got this long history of seeing impacts of medications on health and other types of exposures on health. And I would say that we forget that history, particularly when we look at what happened to Flint, Michigan. We have a two-year study in Flint, Michigan, where children and families were exposed to high levels of lead in the water because of an error in the pipes, in in the water and the the pipes that um, the water was exposed to. It was... uh, maybe a very simple or a straightforward error, but a major error so that children were exposed anywhere from two to six times higher level of lead. And we saw a lot lasting effects. And it took the power of one. One pediatrician who listened to her, the children, who listened to her parents and started measuring the lead levels. And she found that the Flint water wasn't even safe to bathe a newborn. She brought that to the attention of the newspapers and to the media. And finally, after a two-year experiment, we found that this water crisis had terrible consequences. Fertility rates alone fell by 12%, and fetal deaths increased. We saw that fetal deaths increased in just that two-year time period by almost 60%. Again, it was a mistake, and we paid for it. But lead is found in pipes all around the globe, and we haven't done anything about it. We know that lead Levels should be zero. There is no safe level of lead, yet, we haven't even been able to get rid of lead and gasoline around the world. And lead paint, same issue. So, again, we as healthcare providers need to talk about the environment amongst ourselves and with our patients. We need to provide global leadership. And I have to say, UC San Francisco has been the leaders. Uh, first in 2013, it was the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the University of California, San Francisco, along with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine that provided the first major opinion guiding um, OBGYNs around the United States, um, warning physicians about exposures to toxic environmental agents and all the multitude effects those agents had on health. And then it was in 2015 that we, again, took the same group. And I will tell you, it's Dr. Tracy Woodruff, it's Patrice Sutton, it's um, Dr. Linda Judice, all from UC San Francisco, leading these major efforts and said, we need to bring this to a global level and introduce everybody to the impact of toxic environmental chemicals. And was, um, you could almost see a flash across the screen saying that babies are being born pre-polluted, because of the the exposures that the mothers are experiencing. So what are our concerns? Well, as we've heard, we certainly can talk about climate change. We know there's plastic pollution. I'm just going to use a very brief example of pesticides. We could talk about endocrine disruptors in general, because they impact all aspects of our health. The National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and the National Toxicology Program in the United States government have supported research that shows links between endocrine disrupting chemicals and the way we are harmed, whether it's attention and neurologic disorders. We know that there is an association between endocrine disruptors and hyperactivity. We've seen research that shows the um, relationship between endocrine disruptors and um, autism spectrum disorders. We've seen that children that are exposed to high levels of perfluoroactanoic acids and perfluoroalkyl substrates have a diminished immune response. There's much research taking place now looking at metabolism and the risks of diabetes and other metabolic disorders for, pay, for any of our population exposed to endocrine disruptors. And we've seen a host of studies come out showing premature puberty, particularly in young girls that are exposed to endocrine disruptors. And then finally, a whole host of examples with reproduction, whether we're looking at decreasing sperm counts in the last 20 to 40 years, we're looking at impacts on ovulation, uh, polycystic ovary syndrome, um, penile defects, and genital defects. All of those are uh, related to endocrine disruptors, and we've seen a marked increase in the last 20 to 40 years in the incidence of these disorders. Let's just focus on pesticides as an example. The National Institute of Health has said there is very clear research showing the um, proximity to agricultural activity and studies showing that a fetus is born with low birth weight. We've seen increased risk of fetal death. We've seen increased, um, marked increase in childhood cancers, particularly um, early childhood leukemia. There's very extensive research looking at cryptorchidism, so a, a defect in um, the, a, ch- a male child's reproductive system or hypospadias, a penile defect, found especially where um, there's farming and pesticide use in the women who are exposed to these kind of chemicals. Research has shown that there's, um, when women have high levels of pesticides in their breast milk, we see an increased risk of cryptorchidism. And likewise, we've seen impacts on ovulatory function and sperm function. Again, widespread research in the United States and around the world. We've got research that's coming out of the European Union that confirms all of this, and certainly researchers that we are working with in Africa. But it's complicated. I'm sure almost everybody in this audience can think back to 2016 and recall all of the work that went into identifying the Zika virus. and We just heard um, from Pantosh about the impact of climate change and seeing all the, these vectors that are increasing and a host of increases in um, different um, organisms that cause infections. Well, Zika has certainly been shown to cause um, defects in um, the neurodevelopment, um, particularly anencephaly or microcephaly. And back in 2016, we saw this increase across much of Latin America. The outbreak was severe. It impacted large segments of the population, particularly in northern Brazil, um, but certainly across Latin America. Um, We now know, as I said, that the Zika virus is um, transported by a mosquito, and it is that mosquito affecting the population that has caused this. But it's a little bit more complicated. Again, here we've got Research that's coming out of um, the European Union, particularly Dr. Barbara Deminu's lab in um, in France, where they found that the Zika virus effects are related to piriproxifen. Now, when Zika was when the anencephalic Fetuses were seen, and the microcephaly was first observed. There was a huge amount of discussion back in 2016. Is this the effect of a pesticide that's that's causing it? Is there some toxic chemical causing this distribution? But then, it very uh, you know, the the research very quickly identified Zika. But Dr. Gemino said, "Is it something more going on?" The National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences here in the United States was doing research, but her her lab actually identified several different steps that led to the implication that it's more complicated than purely the Zika virus. We found out that Zika requires a protein called Musashi-1 to replicate. Thyroid hormone suppresses Musashi hormones, or the Musashi protein, but pyroproxyphene, the pesticide that, that had, was being spread throughout much of Brazil, it was being spread directly into the water supply, into water holding tanks, directly into the lakes that were being consumed um, in the northern population of Brazil. The insecticide is a an endocrine disruptor. It interferes with thyroid hormone. So it significantly um, induces musahi. And what Dr. Demen, who's lab has found is that it causes a dysregulation of thyroid signals that are crucial for the steps of brain development. And they found that the the, um, cells that were pre-exposed to endocrine disruptor pyraproxepin aggravated the expression of genes. And their main conclusion was this insecticide is particularly deleterious to brain development in areas where Zika virus prevalence. So we know that we've got an infection, but we know that it's complicated. So what can we do? We can educate, we can advocate, and we can do research. Clinicians don't have to be experts. We need to be familiar with our geographic area. We have to take an exposure history. We have to provide information about the systems and we can communicate the science. We also know that we need to be able to help clinicians. And we heard very clearly from um, Santosh about what we need to do. The same is true here. We provide guidance. Don't heat in plastic in the microwave. Use ceramic and iron cookware. Maybe use a water purifier if you're concerned or have anything to suggest there's a problem with your water in your home. Eat organic, or at least if you can't eat all organic, be selective. Know your personal care products. Avoid phthalates, parabens, oxybenzones, and no regrettable regrettable substitutes. So when something says, oh, we don't have this, it may have its first cousin. So know your substitutions. And use UC San Francisco as a source to rely on. We have the International Federation of GYN and OB saying look at reproductive and developmental environmental health. Dr. Linda Judice has an entire team focusing on research where we say translate the science so we know how to interpret it, advocate so that we know we've got close ties to others, and educate so that we can make sure that we've got programs to help everybody. We want to Um, provide global train-the-trainer programs to increase awareness. We want to amplify the messages that you've heard here about maternal morbidity and mortality. We want to provide research. What is the role of a biobank? Electronic records. Can we measure toxic levels? And what is the research showing us? And finally, we want to provide infographics that help easily translate the research and the science, whether it's pregnancy and climate change, um, PFAS, and the exposome. We want to know where the exposome fits in. How do genes and the environment mesh? What database should we be looking at? Are there toxic measurements we should be following? Is there a toxic equivalent of 23 me that we can measure toxic levels in our bloodstreams? And will behaviors change if we're aware of such toxic chemicals?
2: And how do we take care of women around the globe? Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jeannie, for that terrific presentation. Um, And I will next um, like to turn to Dr. Tracy Woodruff. So we've had these wonderful presentations um, related to women's health in terms of climate and in terms of all of the toxics, such that Dr. Connery was pointing out that babies are born pre-polluted with endocrine disrupting chemicals that um, and um, Dr. Pandapati was presenting that children are born into this climate crisis. So we have all of these huge impacts across generations. And so how are we going to think about addressing these intergenerational injustices and these injustices around women's health? And um, I'm going to next turn to Dr. Tracy Whitrup then to talk about um, science and solutions Dr. Woodruff is the director of and the Allison S. Carlson Endowed Professor for the UCSF Program on Reproductive Health and the Environment, a professor in the UCSF Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences, and the Philip R. Lee Institute for Health Policy Studies. She is also the director of a newly awarded NIHS Environmental Health Core Center grant, the Environmental Research and Translation for Health, which is the Earth Center at UCSF. She is a recognized expert on environmental pollution exposures and impacts on health with a focus on pregnancy, infancy, and childhood, and for her innovations in translating and communicating scientific findings for clinical and policy audiences. Thank you so much, Tracy, and I will turn it over to you.
0: All right, thank you, and thank you for those excellent talks that preceded me and gave great background um, on environmental health and women's reproductive health. And I'm going to start by saying I have nothing to disclose. So perhaps you saw the New York Times article this weekend. Um, Nick Kristoff, who's actually been covering some of the issues that Jeannie talked about related to endocrine disrupting chemicals, um, highlighted a new book that's come out, reiterating some of the data that we've seen, and Jeannie talked about this a little bit in her talk, on the challenges that we have related in this particular case to fertility that's been going on in terms globally in terms of measures of uh, different types of factors that are related to fertility. And in this study, this is from a study that was published um, in 2017, they review studies that had been ongoing pretty much since the mid 1990s till about 2010, measuring declines, measuring sperm count in different populations around the world. And what this, really innovative about this study that was published in 2017 was they aggregated the results from all the different studies. So scientists had been talking among themselves and to the public that there were seeing unusual declines in sperm count occurring in the population, but there wasn't any real consensus among the scientists because there were differences in what people were observing in terms of sperm count from different countries or different locations in the United States. And in 2017, um, researchers who were led by Dr. Shauna Swan published this basically meta-analysis which aggregates the results from all these different studies uh, pretty much demonstrating that there's been a significant decline in sperm count that's occurred over the last uh, about 40 years and there's been about a 50 percent decline in sperm count as well as uh, sperm function. And this isn't the only measure that is leading us to be concerned about reproductive and developmental health, both in the United States and globally. We've seen other scientific indicators that show that there's reason to be concerned about declining reproductive function. Um, And there's also indicators of increasing rates of reproductive illnesses that's been occurring since the mid uh, 20th century. So these have been reported through uh, measures of increasing difficulty in conceiving and maintaining pregnancy. There's been concerning increases in rates of testicular cancer, both in the United States as well as other countries around the globe. And then the reports showing declines in sperm count. And while sperm count itself is not necessarily um, a health, Factor, it is an indicator of ability to achieve fertility as well as an indicator of male reproductive health. So, one factor that has been changing um, greatly since the late, uh, since the mid 1940s is chemi- chemical production. And this shows chemical production in the United States, which has h- increased over 15 fold since the 1950s. Um, so, we've seen an increase in the different types of many different types of manufactured chemicals that are used in many different types of products that we uh, come into contact with every day. And Jeannie talked about one group of those chemicals, two groups of those chemicals, pesticides, as well as endocrine-disrupting chemicals. And so these can include uh, chemicals that she mentioned, including things like the phenols, which are in the lining of cans, phthalates or plasticizers, which are um, ubiquitous in different types of plastic products flame retardant chemicals, which are found in many different types of foam applications and furniture, and these um, PFAS chemicals, which are found in many types of different types of non-stick type of applications. And these are a few examples of some of the many different types of manufactured chemicals which have come onto the marketplace in greater amounts and volumes since the 1940s, 1950s. and the we can come into contact with these chemicals or pollutants in many different ways and from many different sources of exposure. Jeannie touched on some of these, but we have chemical pollutants in water. So she talked about lead in, as an example, in the Flint, Michigan crisis. We have pollutants uh, that come into our food, often from food contact materials or from other factors like pesticides, um, air pollution, which Antosh talked about. Um, It's also a um, additional effect of climate change. Um, Products in our house contain many different types of industrial chemicals, um, including, and personal care products also have chemicals in them. And I just wanna note that there's also unequal distribution of environmental chemical exposures in this case of showing people who work in farm fields, for example, in the middle of California or other places in the United States. And so in these situations, there are people who have higher exposures, in this case, because of their occupation or work. And what we know from studies that have been done, uh, both by us at UCSF, as well as other researchers in the United States, as well as around the globe, that we, uh, these chemicals are used in these many different products. Pollution is getting out into these various places where we come into contact with them, air, food, water, products. And thus, we are coming into contact with these chemicals, and these chemicals are entering our body. And we've demonstrated, as well as other people have shown, that pregnant women have measurable levels of many different types of environmental contaminants in their body. This is from a study that we published in 2011. The data hasn't really changed that much, showing that 43 different types of industrial pollutants, including... Um, some of the ones that Jeannie mentioned and the ones that I just mentioned perfluorinated chemicals, flame retardants, phthalates, et cetera, are measured in pregnant women. And these chemicals don't just stay in pregnant women. They cross placenta and multiple studies have shown, have measured these chemicals also in the cord blood of babies that are recently born, uh, demonstrating that to a disturbing extent, babies are being born pre-polluted. And the extent of chemical production in the United States is quite striking. Um, There's about 9 trillion pounds of chemicals produced in the United States States each year. It's about 30,000 pounds per person. And that's just the chemicals that we know about. There's a lot of um, holes in the way that chemicals are reported to the uh, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency records this type of information um, and I'll talk a little bit about what that implications of our are of that for us being able to adequately address this, uh, this extent of these exposures that could be uh, influencing our health. So, Jeannie talked a little bit about some of these uh, pharmaceuticals that physicians are probably familiar with historically. She talked about diethylsilvestrol. It's a estrogenic uh, pharmaceutical that was prescribed quite widely in the 40s, 50s, 60s, because it was thought to prevent preterm birth. This was not the case. It instead, uh, because it was an estrogenic substance um, and it was prescribed during a very critical period of development during uh, during pregnancy, it led to an increased risk of numerous different types of reproductive health effects, both in the children of women who took DES as well as the grandchildren, the most well known being these rare vaginal cancers that uh, presented themselves in the daughters of women who had taken DES and those didn't appear until adulthood. So it clearly showed that um, substances that are manufactured like this this molecule given during a critical period of development could have profound effects on the offspring that may not manifest until later on in their life. Um, in this case for the young women who were the daughters, it wasn't until they reached adulthood. I just wanna point out that Jeannie also talked about that the hormones, one of the reasons that this is so important is that there are hormones that are um, fluctuating during pregnancy that are really critical to proper development, whether it's reproductive development, which is in the case of estradiol and androgens or brain development, which is uh, brain is highly dependent on thyroid hormones during um, fetal development. These, if you can interfere, like endocrine disrupting chemicals can do, with these hormone levels during pregnancy, it can have profound effects later on in the offspring's um, future health trajectory over life. So I just want to show that we look at these industrial chemicals that are also small mon- manufactured molecules, very similar to what you can see here with the sulfolobetal. So it doesn't take you don't have to be a chemist or a scientist to see that these look very similar. And indeed these chemicals like BPA, which are found in cans or phthalates, which are found in plastics or flame retardant chemicals like PBDEs, which are found in furniture and foam are both similar to pharmaceuticals and similar to hormones. And indeed as you talked about, they can disrupt hormonal systems and also perturb development leading to increased risk of numerous different types of adverse health outcomes. thinking about exposures during pregnancy, the uh, health effects can be manifest later. And so let's look at one of these chemicals that we've studied quite a bit, which is phthalates. So this is one phthalate in the phthalate family called dibutyl phthalate, and it interferes with testosterone levels because it's an anti-androgen, meaning increased levels of phthalate can lead to less um manufacture less synthesis of testosterone. So higher levels of phthalates leads to lower levels of testosterone. Testosterone is extremely critical because it goes up during the prenatal period um, for proper male reproductive development and decreased levels of testosterone, um, which can be caused by increasing levels of phthalates, can lead to effects on male reproductive development. And indeed, there's a very robust literature demonstrating that phthalates Um, Can increasing levels of phthalates can increase the risk of uh, male reproductive health effects, such as uh, measures of feminization of baby boys and decreased levels of testosterone in in infants. As I mentioned, phthalates are a plasticizer chemical. They're used in many different types of products, not just plastic products, but that's one of their primary uses. So they can be found in um, products like because they're used to make uh, hard Plastic soft, so they can be flexible. So they're found um, in medical equipment like tubing, blood bags, plastics. They're also found in vinyl flooring, wallpaper, paint, glue, adhesives. Uh, they also have a property that they can convey scents. So they're found in cosmetics as well as other types of personal care products. They're also responsible for the new car smell. They're also found in the coating of pharmaceuticals. So they're used in all different types of products. Many, all of which we come into contact with in many different uh, time points during the day, or during the week, during our life. And subsequently, studies show that these phthalates are measured pretty universally in people. Uh, and this has been shown through numerous studies, including studies conducted by the U.S. government through their biomonitoring program. And because phthalates are an endocrine-disrupting chemical, they, uh, exposure to phthalates, as I've mentioned, has been linked to male reproductive health effects. Reduce fertility, and also was a new study that came out uh, looking across multiple studies that have found increasing phthalates can um, lead to uh, effects on learning and behavior effects. They're also re- uh, related to metabolic diseases like obesity and diabetes. All of these health effects that phthalates are linked to or can increase the risk of are chronic diseases which are increasing in the population. Also want to note that phthalates, um, like many other types of industrial chemicals, there's racial disparities or inequities in exposures to these chemicals. So for phthalates, uh, studies that we've done as well as others have shown that African American women can have, have higher exposures to phthalates. Um, some of this is related to, and also that some of the products that, um, certain populations are using, like, uh, certain types of beauty products can have higher, um, can relate, can be associated with higher um, levels of phthalates in um, African American women. And so, one of the con- additional concerns about chemical exposures is the unequal distribution of these exposures and the implications for uh, what that may mean for health inequities in the population. There's something else about phthalates that's very important that links to the intersection between chemical exposures and climate change. And that is, is that plastics are a byproduct or a product of fracking gas, um, unburnable coal, and oil, which are driving a essentially an increase in plastic production in the United States. So the petrochemical industry or the Petro, the fossil fuel industry, which is responsible for greenhouse gas emissions is also linked to um, the production of plastics in the population. So ExxonMobil, which is a fossil fuel company is also one of the biggest producers of phthalates um, globally. This is right here, so this image is from their website showing that they produce plasticizers and they have a whole line of products of phthalates that they produce. And that is because phthalates, along with some of these other, um, some other um, chemicals, are intermediate products that come from natural gas production, actually. Uh, and, and they uh, serve as a feedstock to phthalates, which then is made into plastics and then is turned into these many different products that I previously mentioned, which tire sealants, paints, antifreeze, pool liners, vinyl flooring, food packaging, food wear et cetera, which then we get uh, come into contact with and we get exposed. So there is a link between um, the fossil fuel industry and the chemical industry because of this common source from natural gas and other fracking sources. I just wanna note that also these uh, industries, including these fossil fuel industries are often more located in uh, communities of color or low income communities so that, along with additional exposures that it can occur to um, uh, African American, Hispanic, Asian populations, higher exposures to environmental chemicals can lead to this trickle jeopardy uh, and environmental risk gaps. Meaning that uh, certain groups are going to be more highly impacted by exposures disparities, such as these living near polluting facilities or having um, having more contact with products that have. Uh, chemicals in them, along with certain types of social vulnerabilities such as poverty, racism, discrimination, food insecurity, that can also um, be linked to this triple threat. Is other so, for example, if you're more likely to have a chronic illness, and then you're exposed and have these other social vulnerabilities, those can interact and create a greater risk of health um, health health adverse health outcomes, which could be a factor um, contributing to Health disparities across the lifespan. So briefly, I'm gonna talk about the um, policy context for this. So I talked about dipolbesterol, it's a pharmaceutical. Pharmaceuticals are required to go through um, testing for safety and efficacy prior to be introduced onto the these allow physicians are allowed to prescribe them. Seeing the people following the news with COVID saw that. The vaccines had to go through quite a lot of testing before they were allowed to be used by the public. Manufactured chemicals, which look very similar to, similar to pharmaceuticals, do not have to go through the same type of rigorous testing in order to stay on the market or even really new chemicals to be on the market. So this is a concern because the laws that are currently, and this is in the United States, it's not the same um, in Europe, for example, are do not require that we have a uh, high level of evidence of safety before they can be used in products, which means that we are exposed to the chemicals right now without completely knowing where they're used, what the sources are, and how they may be impacting our health. So this is why um, Jeannie talked about this. It's been so important to be working with our clinical partners because they are at the front lines of um, advocating on behalf of women Uh, children and families for their health, and that the work that we've done with the International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetricians has been crucial because they have taken a very important stand in terms of recommendations for how to address the growing burden of chronic health conditions and the contribution of environmental exposures. And the first recommendation is to advocate for policies to prevent exposures to toxic environmental chemicals. And this is in large part because um, while individuals can do something to reduce their exposures, they are in many ways um, powerless to uh, reduce many of their exposures. And I'll just, air pollution is a really good example where the sources are far away, but we're uh, being affected by them. And really it's a place where the government and public policies are needed in order to ensure that um, far sources other than far from us that we don't control are controlled so that we um, to uh, protect our health. Um, the second recommendation is to ensure a healthy food system, um, make environmental health part of healthcare, and champion environmental justice because exposures are not equitably distributed. And I'm just gonna briefly say that public po- talk, uh, through the example of phthalates again about um, why public policy is so influential, um, but also the marketplace can also be influential. And that is is that the effects of phthalates, certain phthalates, on, um, as an important risk factor during development was recognized by California and nationally um, and overseas. And there was a ban that was assigned by um, Governor Schwarzenegger, this was a while ago, and then by President Bush nationally that banned certain types of phthalates just from children's toys. But it had the effect uh, for those phthalates that were banned to decrease the level of phthalates Um, in the population. This is data, again, from a national survey of, uh, from biomonitoring, which measures uh, different types of industrial chemicals and people across the United States. And this is levels in 2001. This is levels in 2009. And you can see for the phthalate, this particular phthalate was banned, the levels went down significantly between 2001 and 2009. And this is, probably in large part by signals sent by the government that banned phthalates, even though it was in toys. Manufacturers uh, probably anticipated that and took it out of other products in the marketplace. This particular phthalate here, you can see that the levels actually also went down in people across the United States, but it wasn't part of the ban, but was a very, um, was part of a significant market-based campaign that was uh, launched by uh, environmental and public health groups. And a lot of manufacturers took this chemical, which was primarily being used in cosmetics, took it out of those cosmetics. And you can see that those levels went down. But because this was focused on certain types of phthalates and not all phthalates, the, these phthalates were replaced with a new phthalate that you can see was is going up in the population. So you get this regrettable substitution, whack and all. This problem is that you have a phthalate. You take out, but it's replaced with something else. So there is uh, the law in the United States that governs these industrial chemicals is Toxic Substance Control Act. Um, there's about 40,000 industrial commercial consumer product chemicals and the many different products which I talked about. It is was recently updated in 2016. Um, there are some key elements of it, but it represents an opportunity now to uh, try and address some of these unmitigated exposures that are happening in the population because of some of the changes that have happened in the law. Importantly, (laughs) actions that will be taken by the federal government, meaning EPA, will override states because that's preemption. And there's still key decisions being left up to implementation, which has been very interesting because we've had this start in the Trump administration and now being um, taken up by the Biden administration. But it does require addressing risk to susceptible subpopulations. And the chemicals, this group here, and this is kind of brown, is phthalates are chemicals that are currently undergoing review by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency representing an opportunity for more comprehensive policy approaches to addressing phthalates as well as other industrial chemicals. So in conclusion, environmental chemical exposures are widespread, ubiquitous, and they can adversely affect health inequitably. While science is very important, um, we really need uh, engagement by scientists and healthcare providers for systemic change and community partnerships and support is key as Jeannie and Sanchez talked about and really need public policies uh, to create equitable um, solutions to reducing exposures across the population. And with that, I'd like to thank the one Um, our
2: team at UCSF, and I will turn it back to you, Patrice. So the one question um, that has been posed um, is uh, what about the subsidies that our government continues to provide fossil fuel companies? And I would just expand that and ask, because essentially, that question gets to this issue that we haven't, you've all mentioned, you've mentioned issues that the food system, you've mentioned where toxic chemicals come coming from, and um, all of these injustices that are essentially the DNA of our society that's built on fossil fuels. So the subsidies through fossil fuels as opposed to subsidies for building the DNA of our societies differently is kind of hardwired. So um, in, in terms of that, I would ask you if you wanted to elaborate um, on the research and policy directions that you see are needed to essentially make visible and address these underlying injustices associated with these exposures and toxic environmental chemicals and our cl- climate crisis. And I know each of you have mentioned some specific things, but I wanted to give you an opportunity, since especially since the whole point of this mini medical school, and it has come out so profoundly in all of your talks, that really... It's, it's making a, a change on a, whether it's the way we organize our um, chemical policy and what we allow on the market and what level of proof is needed before things get on the market. If you would each want to um, elaborate on your perspectives about whether it's direct fossil fuel subsidies or in any way, how can we um, together make systems change to address these injustices? Who wants
3: to go first?
2: Oh, thank you so much,
3: Dr. Punch. That's good. Well, I think, uh, first of all, um, the talks by Jeannie and Tracy, fantastic. And I learned so much. And I really thought that these are all interconnected, right? I mean, on the face of it, we're talking about certain chemicals or certain exposures. and, And how does it all link together? And Tracy, you were getting at this in terms of we have an economy that is built off of extraction of fossil fuels. And then derivative from all of that is all of these exposures. And of course, for a while, we got away with it. But now we're paying the price. And we're paying the price in terms of um, you know, climate change, where it really becomes a societally disruptive, civilizationally disruptive event. Um, we have subsidized, but really the point of it is, is we haven't incentivized good behavior Mm -hmm. and proper behavior. And rather than looking at it as, at it as subsidization, we need to start building an economy that takes into account the negative impacts on human health, the cleanup efforts for, and we're talking about human health, but also on the, the biodiversity and and the overall impact on the planet because we, we're, we truly are dependent on other organisms to frankly make the oxygen that we breathe right and to suck up the carbon dioxide that we emit and so there's no escape and i think what we really need to do is and, and i think this is where things are lost when people disparage a concept like the green new deal because you cannot address phthalates, for example, without addressing plastics, without addressing natural gas, without addressing fossil fuel, which means that you have to address how we generate energy in the first place. So all of these are interdependent and interlinked. And in order to really make the change that we need, we've got to wholesale change the entire uh, bargain we've made with nature and that's where something revolutionary needs to come into play. And we are at those times. And unfortunately, if we don't do something revolutionary, we're not going to be able to really thrive as a global species. Uh, that's my take on it. I'll, I'll, I'll pause well, there.
4: And if I could add to that, I, um, Tracy and I were there as we worked on um, TOSCA reform, toxic substances, chemical um, reform, and... All of the negotiations, all of the work it took just to make a little tiny dent. And we kept saying um, we needed women designated and, you know, or children designated as vulnerable, just something that's that important that those that's a vulnerable population we need to talk about. Um, The second is what we would love to see is the chemical industry held to the same standard as the pharmaceutical industry. Clearly, the reason that a lot of clinicians don't even understand the difference is they just assume everything functions like the pharmaceutical world. You've got to have years and years of research done before a pharmaceutical is going to be on the market And they don't know that's not the case. So having that same kind of standard that we aren't going to have a chemical released on the market until it's been shown to be efficacious, that it's shown to be um, safe. So we've got to look for those kind of standards. And and they're hard to achieve. The, The negotiations are really difficult. I think Tracy was part of those negotiations for a solid year.
0: Yeah, I would say that, uh, I mean, I agree with all the comments. I think that it's, you know, sometimes you have to like think about what's your, I'm not going to, I can't speak authoritatively on subsidies, but I do think we can talk a little bit about, right, there's, I mean, climate change has been a topic as well as chemical policy reform for decades. And, you know, the Harris Accord, I mean, that was back to the first George Bush when they were talking about. Um, entering these uh, treaties to deal with climate change, and so I think there's, well, we've made good progress on talking about the science. I think that there's, you know, the issue that we don't real that we haven't really grappled with is the market forces that are, you know, that have something to gain by keeping things the way they are, and I think we're seeing some shift in that. But it is, um, I think, we need to start talking. More sunshining, How this the policy science sphere is being influenced by these um, stakeholders who have a financial ga- stake in the in the outcome because they have a lot of say in this. And I think we're a little shy about talking about that. But I clearly see where we are, uh, what's happening with the with the outcome. I mean, I just note that the biggest one of the biggest plastic facilities, I think, I don't know if it's globally or in the U.S., is being built in Pittsburgh. Um, right now, and um, once it goes online, it will dwarf any of the other plastics that are being made in the United States, and that's the kind of thing where, when we start to talk about policy solutions like the Green New Deal, having something that thinks about um, addressing climate while also dealing with toxics is important, so.
2: Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you all. Um, so, revolution, definitely. Um People... Yeah, well, lots of people who that, say that, you know. That, that's, that's the word I heard. Um, um, so, um, person is asking, what are the costs of eliminating toxicants in our environment? Would it take replacing a lot of our infrastructure to be able to accomplish this? Well, I think you're looking at changes
4: in how we use products and there's certainly a push if you look at the european union where the european union has said they're going to ban um entire classes of you know endocrine disruptors they're going to just ban it and they've given them a, a time period which has had to take place they're managing and they're doing it they they there's a, a ban on pesticides over large areas they're managing it and they've given a time frame um, but when it gets into us negotiating our, our commerce deals We don't see that because we are competing with a very strong chemical industry. So I think you have to look and learn from other groups, other societies, where they've been able to accomplish more. And again, they look at the health benefits of eliminating endocrine disruptors or looking for all those sources of endocrine disruptors.
3: I think we can use the experience with chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, as a case in point where a revolutionary change needed to happen and it did happen, right? We were depleting the ozone rapidly and the idea was laughed off when the original chemists said that this was a threat from CFCs. And then when observational data proved their hypothesis, it became uh, an alarm, uh, quite alarming. the world gathered together. They said the cost of losing the ozone layer to life on Earth is far greater than simply phasing out uh, a certain class of compounds. And now the ozone layer is on its way to healing up. And I think there is precedent for being able to do this. I think a lot of people say, oh, there's just no way that this can be done. And it goes to what Jeannie's saying. You just get it done and, and it has to because the consequences are going to overwhelm economies when we are dealing with natural disaster after natural disaster after natural disaster. And when we are dealing with loss of life uh, as we are talking about from the data that Tracy's presented and Jeannie presented and, and the negative impacts on health from exposures. I, I don't even think it's really Something we can compare. And as healthcare providers, I think we can approach this like we approach tobacco. Um, The reality is we have industries that gain to make short term profits. The markets are designed towards incentivizing short term profits. But as healthcare providers, we have a bigger goal here, and that is to protect long term well being. And I think we can use our efforts towards tobacco, for example. As a, a, a reference point,
2: Tracy, did you want to add anything before I move on to the next question? Um, well, I do think one thing that might be a better
0: sideways way to deal with this because you know you have to take on many different things at the same time because there's a lot of challenges. Is actually I'd be interested about you and I thoughts about this, but better incentivizing prevention because okay, I'm just going to speak from being at UCSF, you know, it's clear our department makes a good set of money by treating people with infertility and cancer and, and right, the whole system is set up for treatment of somebody who's already sick. And I know the Affordable Care Act tried to address this a little bit with this healthy communities component. But I think that, you know, we have to be thinking about multiple prong strategies. And that is one that I think, you know, the could be opportunities in that as people realize how important it is to have the Affordable Care Act
4: and perhaps expand it. Honestly, that's the Women's Preventive Services Initiative. The Women's Preventive Services Initiative looks at what are the preventive health care strategies we need over a woman's life force. So we make sure that we're doing everything to prevent rather than treat disease. So And we put um, environmental exposures as a core element of well women healthcare it needs to be right so if healthcare systems
0: have to be responsive to prevention then that makes incentivizes them to talk more about climate change and chemicals and other environmental factors I feel like exactly. that kind of we also need that kind of carrot stick type situation
3: i think that's a brilliant uh, way to get it re- right because uh, sizes out
0: yeah
3: right go ahead Oh no, we we as healthcare providers don't realize how much the environment of our patients has already set in course uh, adverse outcomes, and so the reality is that, and and this gets at really uh, maternal mortality and morbidity. A lot of the benefits gained over the twentieth century were public health measures, right? Access mm-hmm. to uh, resources, clean water, antibiotics, uh, anesthetics, I mean, these are, these are not things that any individual provider did. These are public health measures that were put into place. And we need to approach this as a public health issue uh, as much as or more so than um, an individual one-on-one issue.
2: And I'll just put in a plug that we are going to have a whole um, a, one of the whole min, one part of our mini medical series is going to be devoted to the healthcare system and healthcare delivery. Oh, and kind of systems change. So this is just a plug. So come back next week. It's not next week. War and Public Health is next week. <laughs> but keep coming back because we're going to we're going to be promoting big changes here. Um, There's a question from Nick Young from New York who's asking, I work in building decarbonization and have heard at various times that the health benefits alone of eliminating carbon emissions from our society will pay for the clean energy transition, even if we didn't care about the other climate impacts. Can you confirm, provide any reference for this idea? Essentially, that we we spend so much on health, which alludes to really what Tracy was getting at, this, there's so much money spent in a health system that gets because we have a society that makes people sick um, is with the health benefits alone of eliminating carbon emissions pay for making the transition
0: yeah, I think one of the challenges with trying to like the health for sure maybe the health benefits would be quite large, but who gets the benefits versus who pays the cost is not right it's a not equal there's different people are paying i mean the fossil fuel industry has the monetary benefits, but they don't pay the true cost of the, any health effects that are happening. So in theory, yes, if all the money was fungible, but it's not, right? Different people have access to different resources at different amounts, different money in that system. So I think that the problem is that the externalities of the costs are basically their externalities. They're not internalized. And so therefore there's no Financial incentive for the industry, or whatever the building or the healthcare sector, to 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 address the prevention side.
3: Yeah, I think it's it's different, right? With tobacco, for example, we've basically raised the taxation rate on tobacco right. so much and taken those dollars specifically mm-hmm. to uh, fund uh, various efforts towards health. You could consider devising a carbon tax, so to speak, that aims at such a uh, uh, similar pathway. The Very popular
0: the, policy solution.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah. I heard it came back this year, but man, that's
3: anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a big reach. But I think if we are going to be doing this through a market-based approach, you need to make it costly to do the wrong thing and cheaper to do the right preventive thing, so to speak. And I think the other way to look at it is not only just healthcare savings, but we don't talk about displaced, displacement in populations, right? When you talk about rising sea levels and coastal areas displaced, I mean, even the modeling of the San Francisco Bay Area, we're going to have to move our SFO, you know, the airport. So the The reality is the cost savings you will get simply by avoiding all of these large scale displacements are going to more than pay for themselves. Plus, you are revitalizing an economy that's going to be based on renewables that are not exportable jobs. They are domestic jobs. They are based they're high quality jobs and they don't expose people to toxic uh, uh, pollutants like, for example, coal mining. So uh, I, I think the benefits are multi-layered uh, and hard to model that, but I just don't understand how you can look at the world you can envision with a revitalized economy, with people who are vibrant and healthy and have access to public transportation and are able to walk and, and get to places and are able to have healthy food yeah, it, it, when you take a step back, it's kind of hard to understand what are people arguing against. Mm-hmm. It's essentially becomes a matter of there is a small court subset of the economy that wants to make money and everybody and they're kind of adversarially uh, opposed to everybody else. And it's that's where we've been historically and where we need to get away from.
2: It looks like we have one minute left, um, and, cause I had another whole question for you, um, but, cause I'll just end maybe on the, uh, inspiring, um, idea I think that Santosh started with that, um, as health professionals, we're really conservation biologists and to mm-hmm. especially for the medical students on the call and the health professional students and speaking for public health uh, students um, as as one from long ago. You know, whatever the whatever you're going into to frame your vision around that is um, A wonderful way to think about the work going forward. And I just add my personal thanks to the three of our speakers for their amazing leadership, research, and advocacy on behalf of their patients and all of the people in the world, really. Thank you so much.
3: You've been listening
0: to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.